It's healthier to eat Twinkies with your friends than to eat broccoli alone. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 18. We need to hang out. After Hours with Billy Baker. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've been reading The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And this past month, we've been talking about the love of friendship, which Jack calls philia. And so in this After Hours episode, we're going to be speaking to Billy Baker. Billy Baker is a graduate of Boston Latin School, Tulane University, and the Columbia Journalism School, and is the recipient of the Deborah Howell Award for Writing Excellence from the American Society of News Editors. He's a writer for the Boston Globe magazine. He's married to his wife, Laurie, and together they have two sons. And he's here to talk to us about his book, We Need to Hang Out, A Memoir of Making Friends. Billy Baker, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you for having me. I first came across you and your book, it was back in April of 2021. I had been listening to your interview with Brett McKay on the art of manliness. And when our listeners told us that they wanted us to go through the four loves this season, I immediately put your name down as a potential guest to have you on the show once we'd finished Lewis's chapter on friendship, because I loved everything that you said. And I went out and got the audiobook afterwards. And I really think that our listeners are going to find your experiences and your thoughts on friendship a really nice compliment and at times a counterpoint to what Jack has to say about friendship. And let me say, the, the had I known that C.S. Lewis had written about friendship and written so well about it, I may not have attempted it, but I uh, I <laughs> appreciate that he was in many ways ahead of his time and was able to say things in in the 50s is that when this was written that mm-hmm. are shockingly applicable today but at the same time there are very many differences in friendship today and i think the biggest one is what we are using right now to communicate exactly i know for a fact that cs lewis didn't have a laptop he didn't have a laptop or a cell phone or tiktok or any of these other things so it, it blows my mind sometimes to try and remember back to that point or to be deliberate about things. Yesterday I was at the market and it was a long line and it took everything in my power not to reach for my phone to occupy myself, but it felt almost invasive to try and strike up a conversation with the people around me, right? Like we we don't do that anymore. We go here. We don't go outward to each other. So he didn't have to deal with that. No, no. And maybe that's the reason that he had great friends in the Inklings. Well, hopefully we will be able to answer that by the end of today's episode. Now, since my son is currently teething and going through sleep regression, I'm drinking the strongest cup of Yorkshire Gold tea known to man. Uh, are you drinking anything? I'm drinking a Topo Chico, which is a carbonated mineral water. It's oh, an overpriced beverage is what it is. <laughs> well, cheers. Cheers to you. So I gave a few brief pieces of biographical information about you, but would you mind uh, taking five minutes or so to fill out the picture for us? Who is Billy Baker? Oh, God. Uh, who is Billy Baker? Well, I'd say for the for the point of this story, I am someone who grew up in a neighborhood in Boston that was very much a culture of street corner storytellers. And <laughs> at some point, I, I don't know what it was that 
ultimately triggered it, but the idea that I might make a living doing just that was appealing to me. So I set out to, like many young people, write the great American novel. And while I worked on that, my parents suggested I get a job. So I got a job at the local newspaper. And shockingly, I found that nonfiction was uh, in many ways weirder and more enriching than fiction. So I focused there. And I, like, you know, most journalists, I focused outside of myself until really kind of with this, what became this book, I I was, you know, occasionally I'd write fun pieces or pieces where I might appear. And this book began with an editor calling me to their office with the promise that they had a, a story that I'd be perfect for. And now let me explain that this is the oldest lie in journalism. This is what editors do to con reporters into doing things they won't want to do. And in this case, it was take a good long look in the mirror. Because (laughs) when I sat down, looked at this editor across the desk, guy about my age, kids the same age, uh, he looked at me and said, I want you to write about how men have no friends specifically middle-aged men. And I was 40 at the time, so I think I was partly offended by being called middle-aged and uh, mostly offended by the idea that I would be perfect for this story. And so really, you know, to unpack who is Billy Baker, it's been on nearly five years now since that conversation. And so the, the contemporary version of it is someone who has been telling his own story for the first time in my in my storytelling career but in a way that hopefully it its purpose is to be relatable to other people so as i've gone on this journey i've written several articles about it that became a book the best part of the whole thing is people raising their hand and saying gosh i i feel like you crawled inside of my head here these things you're admitting <laughs> to these problems you're having like i you know I don't think anyone thought they were the only one. I think it was more a case of this was just something you didn't talk about, something you sucked up, which was loneliness, for lack of a better word, a disconnection, whatever it might be. So who I who I was five years ago is a, a guy who was largely disconnected from my social circles. From the outside looking in, I was a guy that had a lot going for him. You know, I had a lovely wife and kids and a career and all these things. And it wasn't until that editor looked at me and said, I want you to write about how middle-aged men have no friends that I realized I don't really have any friends. Or I I should actually, I'll steal from C.S. Lewis here and say, I had many friends, but I didn't have any friendships, active friendships at that moment. Plenty of guys from back in the day I could call and we could shoot the breeze with, maybe go grab a beer, but... Those were few and far between. And what I was really lacking was active membership in a tribe. So if we fast forward five years, this very long journey that we'll talk about, uh, which is my modern adult friendship journey, I'm now a guy that is, uh, I have an embarrassment of friends. I put in so much effort and I have become such a social chair for a a increasingly large circle of people that I, uh, I can honestly say I've now cycled through to the point where I feel like I'm I'm in my 20s again, where my wife looks across at me and says, hey, maybe maybe you got to stop hanging out with your friends so much and pay attention <laughs> to me. So mm-hmm. that was a roundabout way of uh, avoiding answering the question, who is Billy Baker? 
Well, I think we've uh, I think we've got a good lot there actually. Uh, now you mentioned that you hadn't read much C.S. Lewis before. Had you read anything before I reached out to you and said, "Hey, come on my show"? I do not believe so. What I had done is taken my nieces to see the Chronicles of Narnia whenever that came out, and I remember being like thoroughly impressed. I was not a kid that read Tolkien or, or C.S. Lewis, those sorts of things, and I remember leaving there like. I think I, I appreciated it way more than my nieces did. And my I've since rewatched it with my children uh, as well as a second movie. But I, I, I confess I hadn't read much. And now that I have read some, I don't know if I want to read more or if it will make me feel so inferior intellectually that I just need to kind of hide and pretend there aren't people as intelligent as C.S. Lewis writing in this world. I understand that feeling. Although I will say that if you do read Lewis, you tend to make an awful lot of friends. Or at least if, if you're connected with Pints of a Jack, you tend to make a lot of friends. Fantastic. Before we go much further, we should probably define our terms. Because in The Four Loves, Jack, he makes a bunch of distinctions. He distinguishes between friendship and companionship, uh, between friendship and allyship. Uh, the difference between a friend and somebody that you just do stuff with, or a friend and someone who is in your corner for a particular political end. Uh, and for Lewis, it all begins with companionship, some common endeavor, some common subject. But what turns companions into friends is when two or more people, they discover that they have some shared insight or interest or taste. And he says the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two, I thought I was the only one. So you don't have to go with Lewis's definition. What do you mean when you talk about a friend? Because we have our Facebook friends, we have our high school friends. Right. I think for the most part, these people we call friends are acquaintances or they are former people you were formerly in a friendship with. But on the day to day, when I really break it down, and, and you know, I was just bragging a minute ago about how many uh, great friends I have, but you know, it's probably, you know, five really deep active friendships so what what makes that work i think you know i think c.s lewis broke down perhaps created too much of a, a boundary between friendship and uh what does he call it eros uh romantic love i do think there's a spark mm -hmm. and it, you know it's the same in in a romantic relationship there are moments where my wife clearly looks like she's over me right like the spark isn't there and then <laughs> there are moments when it's like all right we still have it but in friendship i think it's uh you know, the the ones I'm actively being friends with are the ones where the sparks kind of continue to go off. You know, those are the ones where I'm having an actual deep friendship with. So I think for, you know, for the most part, many of us are lucky to have many acquaintances, people we would call friends, people that would probably show up at our funeral. But how many are really going to be distraught? You know, it's probably going to be that tight circle of five. And, you know, that may, on the outside of that, may be people that are surprising, people that used to be your best friend. You know, maybe it was the guy that was the best man at your wedding, whatever it might be. Things change. Time moves on. You know, there's, there's nothing like old friends. You know, that feeling of, uh, Lewis talks about this wonderfully, where you can kind of get together and pick up as if no time has passed. 
that's fantastic. And there is also that that thing with old friends where uh, I forgot to write it down, but he has this great line about it where basically he's celebrating the act, the act of acting up, for lack of a better term, you know, where you're just kind of being stupid and silly with your with your old buddies. <laughs> and so that's wonderful. But like in terms of the actual like deepness, you know, I think it's a matter of feeling like that spark is ongoing. And, you know, it's not a romantic love, but it's still love just the same. I think you've got your finger on something that I would definitely agree with that doesn't it's not present really in the four loves. It, it it is there a little bit in the in that section I quoted earlier. What you two? I thought I was the sure. only one. You know that it's a quickening of the pulse, kind of like love at first sight when you discover that you have you know uh, a, a a bosom buddy. You know you you have you have a, a a soul that reacts to things in the same way that you do, um, and it is something quite elusive. That there are some people with whom you probably should be friends. And I've recently moved to Wisconsin, and uh, I have been purposely introduced to some people because a friend thought that we would definitely hit it off. And we didn't. And why that was, I don't know. I don't think I could really say. And that, you know, there's a lot to unpack. We talked a bit about this before we came on the air, but you are in a classic category that can often lead to you know, loneliness, spoken or unspoken, which is you've moved, you know, you, you, you uprooted mm-hmm. your life, you went somewhere else. You are now in that, it sounds like you're in an environment where you have plenty of family, extended family around, but mm-hmm. you know, the data, which, which I dig into a lot in the book indicates that everyone needs deep, meaningful friendships outside of the family, you know? And so it, it becomes this question of, you know, you, you were talking about, you know, you know, your wife's brothers and things like that, or are they, you know, there is this funny thing we do in, in, in our language of friendship, where if if we're very close with a brother, we say he's more than a brother. He's like a best friend. Right. And if we're very close with Mm -hmm. a best friend, we say they're more than a best friend. They're like a brother. Right. (laughs) But it's kind of defining that there are certain relationships that go past that. So you might be great buddies with your brothers-in-law, but are they like, best friends. You know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot about these things, but you are in a category where you have seem to have two choices, right? You can just kind of roll with it and see if serendipity hands a best friend your way, or you can do what <laughs> I did a little bit in the second half of this book, which is to actively try and cultivate new friendships. And I was fortunate in that regard to be doing it with people with whom I'd already felt a spark. And the impetus to turn that spark into a friendship was that I signed a contract to write a book. (laughs) Your (laughs) impetus is that you are hosting a podcast about friendship right now, and you are probably uh, have a lot of these thoughts going through your head because you were in a situation where I'm sure you have great friends uh, at other in other places in the world, and you know you may be great at keeping up with them, but. For me, I think the thing that was lacking in my life, the thing that I've added to my life, and I think that the thing that is the key to reaping all these shockingly remarkable health benefits of friendship is that you need active friendships. You need to do that. You need to find people you connect with. You need to find a way. If you have friends, you need to find a way to be friends with your friends. If you don't have friends, you need to kind of reverse engineer. There's this term I use in the book 
only because I had a post-it note on my wall forever that said, that thing, what is that thing you need for friendship? And it was like, come on, Billy, you can come up with something better. And ultimately, I started to use the term that what the thing we need is a velvet hook. And it's based on the portmanteau of the French words that became the word Velcro. And so vel- Velcro is a combination of the words velour crochet, which in English translates to a velvet hook. So I feel like the key to friendship is you need that velvet hook. If you don't have friends and you just moved to Wisconsin and you're in the C.S. Lewis, I mean, what's the, what's the obvious thing to do, right? You, you find someone else that has this shared interest. You start with your velvet hook and then look for friends that way. If you have friends, which I think is the more common case, people have friends or people they would care to spend time with. They just don't have a way to do it. And men in particular, but everybody, but men, if you if you get to the <laughs> yeah. point of having to schedule stuff, th- there is a, this, this phenomenon called the joy of canceled plans, right? You start trying to schedule this this time when everyone's going to get together. The, the best part usually is when someone just, you know, in the group text says, you know, what? I'm out. I'm out. This isn't going to work. And you're like, oh, we tried. All right. Let's move on mm-hmm. with our life. <laughs> now, you're right. Not only have I just moved to Wisconsin, uh, I am also above 40. I will just leave <laughs> it at that. Uh, <laughs> and also in response to your question about uh, am I really good friends with my brothers-in-law, well, I'll just say this. One of my brothers-in-law bought me a bottle of Laphroaig. The other ones didn't. Draw okay. from that what you will. <laughs> uh, but you're, yeah, no, you're, you're entirely right. Uh, and this was actually one of the things that I told my wife. I said, okay, because we were moving to Wisconsin literally just a couple of weeks before our son was about to be born. And I told her, okay, we're going to make it to the new year surviving looking after a newborn child and then after that i'm going to make some friends because as you say you can you can subsist on family and that's great but i wanted something else and i did exactly what you suggested i'm starting a new cs lewis group here in lacrosse i've been reaching out and uh, we've already got a little kernel going uh, ready to start probably next month but before we get to that i want to look at the flip side of things look at the absence of friendship Because in The Four Loves, Lewis spends a lot of time talking about whether friendship is useful. He concludes that it's unnecessary, like philosophy or art. It's got no survival value, but rather it gives value to survival. But this is one of the counterpoints, I would say, where your book draws a slightly different conclusion. Because one of the main things that it says is that friendlessness can be hazardous to one's health. And this is why I quoted you at the beginning of the episode. Because you had said, it's healthier to eat Twinkies with your friends than to eat broccoli alone. So would you mind unpacking that a little bit? It's a lot to unpack. The short answer is it has to do with chemicals in your body, you know, triggered by friendship or triggered by loneliness. And the way those chemicals play out, I feel like the takeaway is if you have the good chemicals in you, you're going to reap these good health benefits. If you have these bad chemicals going through you, you are far more likely to get every single thing you don't want to get. And let me say, as someone who's now written a book on this, who's the science is, is you know, in, involved in many of the chapters of the book, but I, I have a confession to make, which is that I, it's still hard for me to believe this idea that, you know, I've been using this phrase lately, 
you know, I'll be on a radio show and they give you like your, your five minutes. And at the end, they want you to say something pithy to close with. And I've been saying, if you don't want to see the doctor, see your friends. And every time I say it, I feel a little nice. like, look at me <laughs> with my catchphrase. Also, like, there's a part of me that's like, is that true? It still seems so implausible. But the, sh the short of it is that study after study after study comes out showing that loneliness, living alone, even the perception of being lonely is as dangerous as smoking. It's like it's worse for you than diabetes, all these things that contribute to premature death. Loneliness, loneliness. It's, it's shocking. The flip side is... What am I supposed to feel with all these wonderful friendships in my life? You know, because I'm someone who had a void, filled the void. And now, you know, as I do the rounds talking about this book, very often they'll ask about the Wednesday night group that I start in the book. It's kind of the culmination of the book. And it seems very often I'm being interviewed by a woman and she kind of will come at me and say, like, so what what is it you do? Explain to me how this is like some some <laughs> great thing for your health. And it's hard to answer, you know, very often. I'm like, well, the last time we got together, the Wednesday night crew, we tried to see if we could build a backyard campfire so big that someone would call the police on us, you know? And <laughs> what <laughs> Did that do for us? I don't know. You know, I don't know. And oftentimes I'll even be guilty where I'll come home and my wife will ask me something like, oh, how's so-and-so's mom doing? You know, I know she's been sick. And I'm like, ah, oh, it didn't come up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. But you know what? When I get in those situations, what I try to tell myself is that that person didn't bring that up because they're tired of thinking about that. They they wanted to get together with the boys and try and light the, the backwoods on fire. You know, like that's what was happening. <laughs> so the, the, the health benefits, the health risks, they're well documented. All I can say is anecdotally that, you know, the morning after I get together with some friends, I feel like I'm a better dad. I'm a better human. I'm a better employee in ways that I can't quite put my finger on. Like honestly, today was kind of going nowhere. And I got a text from a friend saying, Hey, do you want to get together with so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and go play bar trivia tonight? And I was like, I definitely do. Right. And already my mood has improved. <laughs> and I, I am, I have, you know, at the end of the day, I've got some friend time and, you know, adding, Making mm -hmm. friendship a part of your daily life is the best thing I've done for myself. Lewis talks about this a little bit, you know, in the way we rate it as a priority. And for most people, it's not at all a priority. And by making it a priority, I'm a happier person. Am I a healthier person? I don't know. When when do we determine that? Um, when, when I get a headstone? I don't know. But uh, I seem to think it is working. <laughs> I believe it, even if I have a hard time believing just how dire and desperate the news is for those who might be feeling lonely. And just there, you also affirmed something that Lewis says, which is often quite unpopular. The first time we went through the four loves in San Diego, our group was largely made up of women. I think there was only a handful of guys there that week. And when Lewis spoke about friendship being uninquisitive, the guys are nodding. You know, it's, what's happening with his wife? I, I, I don't know. It didn't come up. We were making a trebuchet. Uh, but to the women, that was unthinkable and horrifying. And 
we'll we'll get to that. But I do think that there's definitely some differences between the sexes when it comes to friendship, at least in in broad terms. Some things are common, but some things are different. But just to wrap up this section on loneliness, my home country in the United Kingdom, they actually have a minister of loneliness. I was shocked when I found this out. They do. That got world worldwide attention because it was a very forward-thinking thing. You know, the UK is probably the world leader in actively addressing loneliness as an epidemic, you know, in, in particular with the senior citizens. Which I find actually rather hilarious because I think the English are pretty terrible at all of this sort of thing in general. <laughs> I, I, I find Americans are much more forthcoming and much more sociable and much more inviting Whereas in, in England, we're much more standoffish, I would say, as a whole. It, that may be true, but what, something I admire about England and Ireland is the pub culture. You mm, know, for the, at the end of the day, you know, we don't, um, you don't go to a pub here with like your kids and eat dinner, right? Yeah. Like it, it, I lived in Dublin for a little while and I was just shocked by that. You know, it was like, oh, look at the whole family's here. Like they don't <laughs> go home and watch TV. They all came here. And, and you know, the Irish take a lot of heat for their drinking, but it wasn't like some obnoxious <laughs> thing. It was, it was like, yeah, the pub is the center of the little village and we go and we socialize and everybody, you know, that that's where we're happily being present in this small life, this small community. And, and that was, Thrilling here, I, I feel like uh, I don't. I don't know. We 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 might be much more prone to oversharing, and uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, gosh, I, I'm going to stop trying to analyze Americans there. But uh, you know, the grass is always greener. I, I will say that I, you know, for the Lewis, for the. Um, I listened to the lecture and uh, you know, back to this grass is always greener. He, he his. I don't know what it is, his Oxford accent, his Cambridge accent, uh, because he, he's Irish as well, right? He's from yeah. Northern Ireland. Uh, but he was English educated. Yeah, and he 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 speaks in that 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 manner that makes everything sound to me like, oh, that's way more intelligent than anything I could ever say. But, it, <laughs> you know, the affectation certainly helps. It, it certainly at least doesn't hurt. <laughs> Just slightly off topic, like we romanticize the British accent. Is the reverse true? Do you no. guys, are you charmed by our American? No, not the not, least bit. Not, no. not at all. The thing is, we get so much American accents from the TV. And in okay. particular, the accents that we tend to hear, or at least pick up most clearly, are the Southern California surfer dude and the Southern drawl and maybe the Texan. So, yeah, it, 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 it doesn't really work the other way around, I'm afraid. And, and can you pick up an American actor doing a British accent? Does that... Does that ring alarm bells? They're typically not great. There are a few good ones. Uh, you, it's only, again, much better around the other way. I, th I would say, by and large, when you have English people doing American accents, they're pretty flawless. I remember the first That's time I That's why I was going to bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. Hugh Laurie, uh, the first time I saw him in house, I was shocked because I grew up listening to this guy and he always played the foppish, posh idiot. And here he was play playing this grizzled American doctor. It was quite shocking. I, and that's why I bring it up. I just got, what's the guy who plays Spider-Man? Like, I jumped out of my seat the other day listening to him being interviewed. I was like, he's British? You're kidding mm -hmm. me. Like, I've now seen three movies with this guy. I thought he was from LA or something like that. But uh, we are way off topic now. But uh, yeah, so I'm glad to know that my American accent is not charming your British listeners right now. 
No, not at all. Not at all. But that's okay, because the content is wonderful. <laughs> now, one thing I did want to talk about, at the beginning of Lois's chapter on friendship, he says he has got to, he's got to take some time to refute the idea that friendship between members of the same sex is really just disguised romance, disguised homosexuality. And I've suddenly encountered this suspicion regarding same-sex friendships in my own life. And actually, at the time of interviewing, I was on Twitter, ugh, cesspit that is Twitter, and what was trending was the Lord of the Rings and questioning the relationship between Frodo and Sam. It is just assumed by some people that this has to be sexual, that it, this isn't, this can't be friendship. And you do address this topic in your book. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Oh, I would love to talk about this. This is a such a barrier to male friendship. It is, I can go in several directions, but uh, uh, what's popping in my head right now is the derogatory use of the term bromance. You know, it's mm-hmm. this it's this little pat on the head that kind of says like, aren't you guys cute <laughs> at being like deep friends? But like, it, it's like a polite compliment saying, but you're not like, you're not too much you know you're, you're you're not being gay right like the the flip side is when there's that fear of that as preventive to a to a relationship and th- that term gay like it, it came out so many times in my childhood whenever men would or boys would be you'd be getting in these situations where you might be deep and meaningful and emotional or whatever it would be and, you know, American men certainly are, are trained not to be vulnerable. And I think good relationships require vulnerability, but vulnerability in those moments, for some reason, there would always be that one person that would, you know, hit the ejector switch. And the ejector switch is to just go, gay, you know, and all of a sudden, we're like, oh, yeah, no, that, that, sorry, let's talk about like who won the game last night, right? Or wh- whatever we can go to that's safe for us. And what's lousy about that is that it's learned. It's cultural. Hmm. There are many different cultures through many different times in history where, you know, that that wasn't a, a concern in any way. And in researching this book and hearing from people, you just keep hearing these stories over and over about, oh, I, I, I visited this place and it, it, I was just so blown away with how physically affectionate the men were to each other how touchy how grabby here you know like i don't know when when have i physically touched my guy guy friends i think it's like and you know like hit him in the shoulder and be like what's up huh you know like uh or give him that little nut tap you know like uh which in some instances there's a charm to that you know that that sort of playful aggression you know they're the you know busting chops whatever it might be but too often, and I'm I'm guilty of it, like too often it's because we are afraid to go deep and we're afraid to go deep because that's viewed as vulnerable and gay. Yeah. There's a line in your book, you talk about we sacrifice intimacy for banter. We immediately pull back and the friendship doesn't go as go as deep as it would otherwise. And you know, that use of the term gay other than being, you know inappropriate and insulting to gay people, it, it too often feels like it, it's being thrown out there at the moment when we are acting like women, 
for lack of a better term. And those are the exact moments where it's like, that's what we should be doing. I spent a lot of this book like eavesdropping on women, just kind of like trying to see what what they did better in this one category. And too often those are the exact things that were, you know, written off as as sort of not for our side of the the hallway. And you were incredibly brave in this research. Would you mind telling people what you did to go and observe female friendships? I am still recovering emotionally, but what I did was, well, in looking, so when I first started researching friendship, I just kept hearing this, this stated as a fact that women are better at friendship than men. And I was like, okay, but how, like in what way? And the thing I would always see held up as this like shining example of American friendship was the girls trip. This like weekend away, the ladies, you know, we're going to go to Nashville. Well, like, you know, and then we're going to get tape or we're going to break it down. Someone's going to cry. Like all, all these like wonderful, you know, friendship chemicals flowing between these women. And I wanted to go on a girl's trip, but if I showed up, then it wouldn't be a girl's trip anymore. So at some point I heard that the new kids on the block, the eighties boy band, had a cruise and that it was just 4,000 women on girls trips <laughs> and no men. And so I thought long and hard about it. You know, am I really <laughs> going to be trapped on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico with 4,000 women and five middle-aged boy banders? And so I went and, you know, and originally, you know, or initially as I got there, I was like, I mean, I knew it was a gimmick, but I was wondering, is it too much of a gimmick? Am I really going to learn anything? Does simply putting on your pith helmet and your monocle and looking at something deliberately, does that lead to actual revelation? And I think it did. I may have been rooting for it to happen, but there was something about the way that the women behave, where I could identify the things they were doing that would have been off limits had this been a cruise with 4,000 men. The easiest thing to identify was that they danced together, all 4,000 moving, you know, in sync. There had been 4,000 dudes that, you know, maybe if they were really drunk, they might, you know, feel comfortable enough dancing. And then one guy would, you know, his elbow hit the other guy. And the next thing there's a fight in the corner and it's all over, (laughs) right? Instead, this was 4,000 women who had a velvet hook. They all liked this one band enough to go on a freaking cruise, you know, 25 years too late. And that, you know, I I read a bit about the phenomenon known as collective effervescence. There was like a sparkle coming off of the, the connection between these people. And it was largely due to, you know, having a velvet hook, embracing it and having this ability to dance with each other, which we've just cashed in. And the reason you guys don't dance because that's one of those things that got categorized as gay. You know, I I can't imagine ever dancing, you know, I got a text saying, do you want to play bar trivia? Imagine if I texted back said, instead, do you want to go dancing tonight? (laughs) I've actually been taking dance classes, which is kind of part of a, yeah, it's part of a, uh, my next book slash project life project. I'm calling it remembering I'm an animal. And in some ways it grew out of this current project where I kept in researching friendship, I kept coming across these things that are like distinctly human that I did not do. And one of them was dancing. It's, you know, we are the only animal that dances with other members of our species. We're also the only animal that sings together. 
many animals sing or are said to sing independently, but we can sing together. And so I'm not someone with much dancing talent or singing talent, but uh, these are things I'm pursuing. And I'll tell you that every dance class I go to, there are no other men there, but I do feel a wonderful connection with the women, mostly senior citizens who are in the class. And after class the other day, this woman said to me, you know, she came up to compliment me on just coming and showing up, you know, and <laughs> at the end she said, uh, doesn't dancing make you feel pretty? And I was like, it does make me feel <laughs> pretty. That's exactly <laughs> what's happening. And you know what it was? It was, I mean, pr- whatever term we want to use, collective, uh, collective effervescence, like there was some sort of sparkle coming across from me to her, you know, in that moment, using dance. In my early 20s, I started to learn to dance because I went to a wedding and there was lots of dancing and I hated every second of it and I wanted the earth just to swallow me up. So for the new year, I took salsa lessons and it took me three months, but I discovered I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then I did swing and then I did ballroom. And for me, the real revelation was I suddenly realized why I had a body. It almost, I was kind of Gnostic before that. It was just like, oh, just I'm just a, a spirit, an intellect, a mind. But when I actually took time to dance, I realized what a wonderful thing it is to actually have a body. And yeah, I know I, when I dance, I also feel pretty. I, oh, you are speaking my language. As soon as I write my next book, I'm going to send it to you because these are all things that uh, dancing is one of these things. Like, uh, you know, I'm calling this project Remembering I'm an Animal. And there are certain things that make me feel like I'm in my animal body. Like, you know, the 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 animal is being used for what it was created for. And strangely, dancing is at the top of that list. So we'll, we'll have to go dancing together if we're ever in the same place. Okay. Deal. Absolutely deal. <laughs> Well, since we've been talking about uh, the differences between the sexes, let's 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 talk about that because it's one of the criticisms of the four loves by a lot of women that I've I known who've read it. They said this feels much more male centric. This seems to be describing male friendship more than how I experience friendship. And I would say, as a general rule, I have heard that pretty consistently. There was a line in your book that echoed something that Lewis said, but with a difference. You were pointing out that sociologists say that women are face-to-face, but men are side-by-side. And that is something I'd completely affirm. I always tell my wife, if you ever want a guy to talk to you, get him doing something, then start talking to him. You, you know, Avoid the eye contact, and he'll open up much more likely. But it said women uh, stand face-to-face, men side-by-side. And Lewis says that lovers stand face-to-face and friends side-by-side. So from your own experience in, in this project and from all the conversations you've had since, what do you think are the differences between the sexes when it comes to making friends? Oh, making friends. Well, l- l- let me just unpack for a bit this uh, face-to-face and side-by-side thing, because I think that is the most illuminating core fact that you can have in your toolbox if you're approaching friendship, you know, doing it deliberately. I learned this very early on in my journey. and. It blew my mind. I was told by a sociologist that, you know, we we sociologists go go around doing these photo studies where we take pictures of people interacting, kind of creeping around. And when you analyze them, there's this very clear difference in the way men and women interact. Women talk face to face and men talk shoulder to shoulder. And it was one of those things where, you know, I'm in the middle of interviewing this person and I'm just staring off into space, thinking thinking through the world. And, and it was like this lens had been cleaned in front of me. And now all of a sudden I could see, oh, that's why 
you know, bar stools are the way they are in, in box seats at sporting events. Or maybe that's why men gravitate to bar stools and sports events and whatever it might be. Whereas women, you know, I'm always very impressed by women who can make a date to get together and get coffee and sit across from each other and have a deep, meaningful conversation. That has never had much appeal for me because as a man, I think I'm more of an activity base, shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder bonding animal. You know, like I, I've used this joke in the past that, you know, if someone were to invite me out for coffee, I, I'd hem and haw. But if that same person said, will you come over and cut down, help me cut down the tree in my backyard? I'd be like, oh, is 5 a.m. too early? You know, like uh, <laughs> I'm up early nowadays. Uh, so the differences between how women and men interact is is physical in the way we posture ourselves to each other. But there's also this difference in how we, so, so those same sociologists have studied, what what is it that women talk about? Something incredibly fun about female friendships is gossip. Women get together and they talk, a good chunk of their conversation is about people who are not there. <laughs> and we know that mutual dislike of a third person is one of the strongest bonds in in, in our relationships, right? Like they're, they're, And I get it. We all get to that point where like you're chatting, whatever, and then someone kind of takes a look over their shoulder a bit and they're like, hey, do you, you hate that person too, right? And you're like, yes, I do. Oh, I hate that person. And then yes. next thing you know. What, you too? I thought I was the only exactly, one. Exactly, <laughs> right? But what's funny is that when the sociologists do the same thing and eavesdrop on men, if they are to say something negative about someone, it is most likely the person that's right in front of them. And that mm. sounds meaner than I think it is. I, it, it's in that category <laughs> of, you know, busting chops and banter and whatever it might be. But it is good natured. Usually it is uh, avoiding intimacy that we've, you know, been perhaps coached away from or, or culturally guided away from. And so in that regard, that's that's one of the categories where I deeply envy women. We know from a, a study done by Robin Dunbar, which uh, we should talk about him at some point, but he is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps the world's leader on the science of friendship. And he did a study that says that women are excellent at maintaining, maintaining relationships over the phone and that men are not. And I put this in my I put this in the original article that read to the led to the book. Some people some women were like irate about this. Like they missed the part where I was citing a study and thought it was my opinion, right? And uh but for me anecdotally, like it, it felt freeing. I mean, when I talk to my guy friends, it's great that we've reached out or we're reconnecting and after about 5 minutes it's like, "All right, so I'll catch up with you later, right? Like, you know, we, we we agree that this is the extent of this conversation. People I love, people I would love to get together and cut it cut down a tree with, but do I really want to sit here on the phone? I don't know why that that doesn't work for us, but measurably it does not. And what about the uh the actual making of friends in the first place? The clearest answer is to look at how men make friends, which is very clear. They make friends over activities. Like that's yeah. our thing. It's basically everything that Lewis says. Right. Companionship, shared activity, and then you find you have a, a deeper interest in some particular aspect of it that binds you together. 
absolutely. And if I had, well, I should say this. I listened to the speech and I watched the doodle, uh, which was remarkable. And where Lewis, <laughs> or, or I should say where the doodle influenced me against Lewis was in some ways the way they literally on the screen boxed women in, you know, it was like all these wonderful things are happening and then there'd be a square. And it was like, here, here's the, here's the mom with the washer and dryer and the little kid. And, and, you know, she doesn't have friends. She has neighbors. She has acquaintances. She's just at home. Granted, this was from a 1950s lens when that may have been largely true, but I think women, you know, the, the data. So uh, I'll, I'll also clarify this much of the long-term data we have on friendship is about men because it was men studying men oh my goodness <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> but, as they but, say. But, but if you ask basically any man they will tell you that women are much better at making friends than they are right genius but you know what anytime <laughs> I, I i make that as a broad brush statement so there are definitely women that will come right at me and be like no we're not you don't know the half of sure. it and and I'll say this there's a line in the book that's probably the most quoted back to me which is I say something to the effect of uh, the only thing I know with absolute certainty about women is they don't want a man telling them how they think right or what they think mm-hmm. and so when you ask me about female friendship um, part of me is like I don't know ask ask a woman you know when uh, the the fun part of this journey for me is that when I go to the bookstore, I'm the only thing on the shelf in the male friendship category. I'm literally surrounded by books about female friendship. They're great at talking about this. And I very often get shelved just because of our last names. I get shelved next to Brene Brown, who's this wonderful you know, scholar mm-hmm. on vulnerability, all these things that are very, you know, historically female-centric ideas, you know, or if she's great at anything, it's talking about how men are so bad at vulnerability. And and I agree with her. But if we point to a, a source for why women may be better than men, it's, I think, that face-to-face intimacy, no fear of being called gay, and willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Dunbar earlier. And in the book, you talk about Dunbar's number. Uh, this was fascinating. Would you mind unpacking that a little? Well, Dunbar's number is... Yes, it it comes up everywhere, and everyone has a strong opinion on it. I'll just tell you the basics. So Robin Dunbar is a a primatologist, I guess. He, he studied primate societies and determined that there was a direct relationship between the size of the neocortex and the animal social group. So when he looked at the size of the neocortex in a human and used that same formula, he came up with this number of 150. That's the number of meaningful social connections that any human can have at one time. He defines it as someone that you would run into in a pub and not be embarrassed to join for a drink. According to him, we all have 150 of those people. That's a very British explanation, by the way. But <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> I so and within that there are subgroups. You know, there is your mm-hmm. your intimacy group. You've got your core. You know, there, there's been much written about it. And, and what's fascinating about it is he proposed a number by doing this math equation. And then when you start looking around, you see this everywhere. It's the size of a Roman legion. It's the size of uh, hunter ga- the average hunter-gatherer tribe. You have 
religious sects that naturally have policies where once they get larger than 150, they split into two. It works. Mm -hmm. Is it true for everyone? No, but it's surprisingly true for most people. Billy Baker, in particular, did something I don't think you're supposed to do with Dunbar's number, which was I I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to use my own definition and say these are... Those are the people I give a crap about, right? Like, who who is it? And I allowed myself to be surprised by who that is and also who that wasn't. And then, like a psychopath, I started writing down names on a post-it note in this very bedroom. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, that guy I used to work with. You know what? I, I really do care about that person. Oh, this person I see all the time. No. Not, not in the 150. I just don't, I just don't care about them. You know, I I mean, Hmm. doesn't mean they're a bad person. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. You know, there's only so much room in the neocortex. Write down names, write down (laughs) names, post them on the wall. You can start seeing, you know, obvious groupings. Like there's my college buddies. There's people I've, you know, worked with in journalism. There's high school, there's sports, whatever it might be. Go through every number in my phone book, all of my social media connections, this was at a point when I was using social media. There's a whole section of the book about me quitting social media and best mm. gift I've ever given myself. So, uh, <laughs> but back to Dunbar's number, write down all these names, post them on the wall. And then comes a the point where I, I think I've got number one time to start counting. And I count and I get to the number 148. And I was like, wow, that is so close. That is amazing. I open the door of this bedroom, go down to tell my wife about this crazy thing I've been doing upstairs, and uh, I hear my two children chatting, and I realize, oh, I didn't write down their (laughs) names because they don't have cell phones or social media, so I didn't have them listed anywhere. So it was exactly 150. And what's interesting about that is those names stayed on my wall for a while, and long enough where new friends came into my life, and others just naturally moved out and it was like it was like maybe i wanted it to be true but it seemed to hold up this number 150 and ever since then i mean i see it everywhere i'm looking for it granted but it it was wildly illuminating and what was great about that exercise was allowing myself to let go of some you know perhaps toxic relationships and also allowing myself to be surprised by whose name was up there and by having those names and putting them into groups, I could start doing some work on, you know what, I got I to gotta get this band back together. Or, you know, this person, <laughs> if anything, it was like this uh, this velvet hook where I could kind of call them up and be like, hey, this is going to sound crazy. I know we haven't seen each other in a while, but I was just doing the thing. I was writing no names and a post-it. And <laughs> I was behaving like a psychopath. Yeah. And your name came out. You made the cut. <laughs> At the back of my book in the acknowledgments, I listed them all. And I mean, it's amazing how many of those people reach out to be like, yeah, I, my name better have been on that list, you know, <laughs> and no one whose name wasn't on there complained. I think we all knew, you know, once it was defined and clear, it was like, yeah, I know him, but I'm not in the 150, you know, and, and it's, that's a big number, you know, there's a lot of room in that tent, but we each have a tent. I hadn't heard of Dunbar before I read your book, but I started digging into his work a little bit. And the aspect of it that I also really liked was this uh, concentric circles, as, as, as I view it, in terms of that you have your super close friends. You then have your slightly wider group and your slightly wider group and your slightly wider group. And I started doing that with my own friendships. 
dumping them into those categories. And the numbers do really work out rather well. Um, and even if I start applying it to other people's lives, I've done the same thing. I can't do it quite as well with Lewis, but he definitely has these gradations of friendship. He definitely has his one or two that are super close and then his inner circle and then wider and wider groups. And he doesn't actually talk about that in the book. And I think that would be well worth some more exploration to see what it is that moves someone from an outer circle to an inner one. It's a tricky thing. I mean, he, he, and anyone that works in this field, they're they're quantifying a, a love, right? Like that's what the this Lewis mm. book is about. And sometimes uh, there's danger in that, you know, in, in trying to measure things that are matters of the heart. But sometimes I'm just blown away with how accurate they could be. And you know, sociology. When I was in college, I think social, or at least my perception of it, was like the softest of the sciences, you know, but I'm, <laughs> I'm blown away at how crisp in, in heart some of the stuff is that comes out of this science of us, right? Science of our, our social groups. Our, it, it, I, I have the sort of brain that if something blows my mind, like it, it, it really does. Like I'm done, right? Like if I'm reading something and all of a sudden <laughs> this fact appears, like, cancel the rest of the day right it's it's part of the reason i i can't read people like c.s lewis because every line i'm like underlining it and then i'm getting feeling self-conscious that i didn't think of that you know <laughs> whatever it might be so but in sociology it's amazing how many things i came across in this study of friendship of loneliness uh, uh, of who we are as a social animal that just felt so crisp and so valuable to know that as I was approaching friendship in a deliberate way, trying to, you know, for lack of a better term, hack my life to to improve my friendships, there, there was so much usable information and information in a cool way. Like, so I wrote I wrote this article that went viral that then led to the book. And part of it going viral was I kept hearing, I kept getting emails from people who were all over the spectrum. But the one thing they shared in common was that no one was really asking for more evidence of the cancer. Like they believed that the cancer was here. They wanted to know what the cure was, as did I. You know, I, I didn't want to write a book about loneliness. I wanted to write a book about friendship. And what was impressive was how many things that I used, or maybe I used inappropriately, like Dunbar's number, to improve my life. And, and I'll say this about Dunbar. I thought like a fun part of the book would be me becoming friends with Dunbar and flying to England and interviewing him. And he totally blew me off. So, and that, that's all in the book. So the world's leading and expert on friendship did not want to be my friend. You weren't part of the 150. I mean, I can't be the only psycho that's that's reached out to him like, hey, I feel like a connection to you. You know, I get I get that a lot. And it's a tricky thing. People would be like, I loved your book. And, you know, if you want to grab a beer sometime, it's like, oh, I, yes, no. I've only said yes once. And it was a wonderful experience. So I'm trying to be more <laughs> receptive to it. People need to get smarter. You just start a podcast and then you get to chat to you for an hour. Easy. Amazing. <laughs> well, listeners, if you would like to hear more about Billy's adventures in making friends, you can pick up a copy of We Need to Hang Out, a memoir of making friends. Billy Baker, thank you for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs> 
and I hear the call for final drinks at the bar. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of your book? Well, you can go wherever trash literature is sold. You can find a copy of my book. It comes out in paperback on January 25th, which is very exciting for me. You never know if you're going to make it to paperback, but also uh, I prefer reading books in paperback form. So, uh, And other than that, I am a staff writer for the Boston Globe. I recently turned this uh, Remembering I'm an Animal journey I'm on into a podcast, which is not very good, but out there in the world, if you want to listen to uh, me, ask a friend why I'm so bad at being a uh, traditional human. Other than that, uh, I am not on social media, and uh, I would advise you to to do the same. So uh, that's usually how these uh, interviews end. You can find him on... I do have all those things, but I, I haven't been on Twitter in forever, and my brain is healthier for it. Glad to hear it. Uh, what actually is the name of your podcast? It's called Remembering I'm an Animal. Okay. And I'll put links to everything in the show notes. <laughs> You'll be our like third listener. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Billy for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening and all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. You can always follow us on social media, even if not everybody is on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, MySpace, bringing it back. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.